This is The Rounds Table. Hello and welcome back to The Rounds Table. My name is Andre Madison and I am one of your rotating hosts. And I am joined today by Michael Juba. Michael is a clinical pharmacist at London Health Sciences Centre in Ontario in infectious disease and antimicrobial stewardship. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Hello. All right, let's get right into it. So tell us about the article that you chose. So I chose an article published in Clinical Infectious Diseases by Tom Barella right now, and it was titled Efficacy of Ceftazidine Avibactam Salvage Therapy in Patients with Infections Caused by KPC Producing Klebsiella Pneumonia. All right, so right up your alley. So tell us about what the bottom line was. Yeah, so the study was a retrospective observational uh, study of patients with carboplaminase producing Klebsiella. And in the, uh, they did an interesting analysis of 104 patients who were bacteremic with these organisms and who had received this drug, ceftazidine avibactam, and they matched them to a cohort of patients who did not receive the drug. And they found a 30-day mortality of about 37% in the patients who received this drug versus 56% in the patients who did not receive the drug. Okay, promising. So tell us about why you chose this article. Yeah, so I think this article highlights a number of interesting points. First of all, ceftazidine avibactam is a newer drug which has been approved in the U.S. and Italy for hospital-acquired pneumonia. They've had some studies that compared it against neuropen for this indication. More recently, I think it's been looked at as an agent that could potentially be used to treat organisms which have carbapenemases. Now, carbapenemases are enzymes which essentially break down carbapenems, which are thought of as one of our antibiotics of last resort. They're very broad and they target a lot of organisms. So having these bugs which can destroy this antibiotic poses a serious threat to healthcare as a whole. Now, we could be just talking hypothetically about all these things, but these carbapenemases are actually something that are coming to Canada. They're becoming more and more prevalent around the world, and even in Canada, they're becoming more and more prevalent. So this is something that I think we definitely need to keep an eye on, and having more treatment options for these organisms is always helpful. Awesome. So certainly worthwhile sharing with the greater medicine population. So tell us about the design of the study. So the study was a retrospective observational study, and it actually had two parts. So the first part just used the strip of statistics in order to kind of describe all the patients who they gave this drug to. And in the second analysis, they looked at the subgroup of patients who had received the drug, and they compared them to a matched cohort of patients who did not receive the drug. So the study took place in 16 hospitals in Italy, and the study included adults who had confirmed infection with this Klebsiella pneumoniae, which produced a Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase. Now it's a little bit confusing but we don't need to focus on sex of that. Just know that they have this carbapenemase. And so they included patients who had received ceftazidine avibactam for more than 72 hours. And now, in the primary analysis, the patients they had were about 68% male, and they had a median age of about 60. About 30% had their cultures initially sent from the ICU. In the second analysis, the patients were about 65% male, and the ceftazidine avibactam group had a median age of 60, while well, the control group had a median age of about 72. Now, both groups had similar rates of septic shock. And it's interesting to note that about 75% of patients in both the control group and the ceftazidine avibactin group have received other antibiotics as well. And it looks like so some of the other common antibiotics that are used or that were used in, at this time in the cohort, gentamicin, phosphomycin, tigercillin, colistin, so all quite rarely used antibiotics. Yeah, certainly. And these are antibiotics that, in general, you don't want to be, have to use because they have lots of toxicities associated with them and can cause serious harm to patients. 
So tell us about the main results of secondary analysis where they compared it to the groups. Yeah, so I think the secondary analysis is probably the more interesting one. And essentially, they were looking at 30-day mortality. And what they found in the patients who had the bacteria with these organisms, they found in the group that received the ceftazidine bactam, they had a mortality of approximately 37%. And in the control group, they had a mortality of about 56%. And that had a p-value of 0.005. Wow. So in 30 days, despite using these rarely used antibiotics, 50% of the non-septazidine avibactam group had, had died, which this is a sick, sick group. Absolutely. So tell us about the limitations of this study. So certainly there are lots of limitations to this study. I think the first kind of most obvious one is the fact that it's an observational study. And we have to keep in mind that observational studies have lots of limitations and cannot prove causations, and so on and so forth. Beyond this, another point that we were speaking about earlier was the fact that the vast majority of patients were on multiple antibiotics. And these antibiotics, as I mentioned, have multiple toxicities associated with them. And therefore, we don't really know how those could have contributed to mortality or harm that the patients had. Beyond this, the drug had to be received at the time in Italy through a compassionate supply program from the company, which could lead to a delay of initiation of the drug. And it kind of also makes you think that uh, these patients like, how did they decide which patients received the drug versus which didn't? They can explain that very well in this study. Beyond this, the kind of, I guess, other major criticism or limitation is that when they matched the group to the matched cohort of the control group, they only used two criteria. So they only looked at the number of days that the patients were bacteremic before initiation of salvage therapy, and they essentially looked at the severity of bacteremia. And now this leads to lots of potential sources of bias. We don't know if different sites in Italy could have potentially been treating patients differently or if mortality was being spread throughout. Beyond this, there could just be a number of other confounders which can uh, kind of confuse the picture. You know, as you point out, when you think of the hierarchy of evidence, this is fairly low in the pyramid, but it, sometimes that's what you're left with. And it's, you know, I, I think we can't get ahead of ourselves with interpreting the study, but it is, I do applaud them for uh, going through the efforts of, of getting the compassionate care in these patients. So tell us about the take-home message for you. Yeah, so I think we need to be a little bit careful to study, as you mentioned. I think in this specific context for this type of organism that produces this type of carbapenemase, it could be a useful drug. And so this is kind of one of those things where you probably wouldn't see it very often, but these patients who are very sick, we could use this drug in this situation. But I think the interesting point that this article brings up is that uh, carbapenemases are something that are becoming more and more prevalent. And I think we're gonna all need to keep them on our radar and going forward, because I think people are gonna start seeing these more frequently and the numbers are on the rise throughout the world. So we'll have to keep our eyes open, and when these bugs start coming through more and more commonly, it'll be nice to have another tool in our toolbox. Awesome. So yeah, thank you for sharing that uh, with us. I have to say I don't always read this journal, so I'm glad you brought it to our attention. So let's change gears to the article that I chose. The article that I chose was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in December of 2018, and it was known as the COACT trial also known as transcatheter mitral valve repair in patients with heart failure, published by Stone and colleagues. Okay, so what is the bottom line for this article? In this open-label, randomized controlled trial of patients with symptomatic heart failure with moderate to severe secondary mitral regurgitation, transcatheter mitral valve repair led to a reduction in heart failure admissions over a 24-month period 
compared to a control group of medically optimized patients. Okay, so a little bit outside of my area of expertise. So can you tell me why um, did you choose this study? Sure. So just to get some terminology out of the way, primary mitral regurgitation is an anatomic or structural abnormality to the mitral valve, whereas secondary mitral regurgitation is considered a disease of the left ventricle. So whereas the, where the mitral valve is normal in structure, but is unable to coact because of distortion of the left ventricle. There's two reasons I chose this study. The first is that there is good evidence for mitral valve repair for primary mitral regurgitation. But this is really the first randomized controlled trial showing positive benefit to mitral valve repair for secondary mitral regurgitation. Second reason I chose this study is that in this issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, there were two trials on this topic. There was the Stone and colleagues article that we're discussing, which was a positive study, and a study out of France published by Obadia and colleagues, which was not a positive study. So I don't know if I'm just an epidemiology nerd and like to figure out the difference in the methods that made the results so different, or if I'm a sucker for controversy, but I sort of like when journals do this type of thing. Certainly brings some scientific drama to the scene. <laughs> so, so what is the design of the study? So this was a multi-centered, open-label, randomized control trial conducted in the United States and Canada. It was industry-funded by the company that makes the mitral clip. And patients were eligible if they had ischemic or non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with an ejection fraction of 20 to 50% with moderate to severe secondary mitral regurgitation on echocardiogram. And the patients had to remain symptomatic, New York Heart Association class two to four, despite maximal guideline-directed therapy plus or minus resynchronization therapy. So there was a running period and if patients were no longer NYHA class two or four after they were medically optimized, they were no longer eligible. The patients that were included were randomized to undergo transcatheter mitral valve repair using a mitral clip and medical therapy versus medical therapy alone. The primary outcome was admissions for heart failure in a 24 month follow-up period. There was also a primary safety outcome, which was freedom of device-related complications in 12 months, and multiple pre-specified secondary outcomes, which I'll get into a little bit later. All right, so tell me a little bit about the results. Sure, so there were 614 patients randomized. There were 293 patients who received a mitral clip, were in the mitral clip group, the average patient was a 71-year-old male with New York Heart Association class two or three symptoms. 60% of patients had ischemic cardiomyopathy and 40% non-ischemic. Looking at their comorbidities, 30% had diabetes, 50% had atrial fibrillation, 30% had had an implantable cardiac defibrillator, and 35% had previous resynchronization device therapy. The mean creatinine clearance was 50 millimeters per minute, 
So this is a fairly, I think, representative group of severe refractory heart failure patients. The key result is that within the group of patients who received a mitral clip, 92 of them had one or more hospitalizations for heart failure in two years. Compared to the medical therapy alone patients, 151 of them had a hospitalization for heart failure. So when you look at it in a different way, those who had a mitral clip, they had a 35% annual rate of hospitalization for heart failure. Those with medical therapy alone had a 68% annual rate of hospitalization. This was statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.53 and a number needed to treat of three to prevent one heart failure admission in 24 months. That benefit was seen for both ischemic and non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. When you look at the secondary endpoints, all-cause mortality at 12 and 24 months, quality of life using the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, New York Heart Association class, and six-minute walk test were all statistically significantly favoring the mitral clip group. Looking at the safety outcome, 97% of patients who received a mitral clip had no complications at 12 months. Looking at safety a bit more, so there were nine patients in total who were listed as having some form of complication. This included patients who had a single leaflet device attachment, so the clip is only attached to one leaflet, also included device embolization, but also downstream effects which were listed as complications including requiring heart transplant and left ventricular assist device. So, wow, it right, seems like some pretty impressive results, and I'm reading the treat of three. It's not often that we hear an intervention that, that was that no. good. Yeah. Okay, so this kind of brings us to the next point about what are the limitations to the study? So there are certainly limitations, and I think two big ones. The first is that this is an industry-funded study, and so the company Abbott, who produced the mitral clip, were involved in both site selection, site management, and analysis of the data. It's hard to know whether that actually had any impact, but to me, that does raise the potential for red flags. The second point is that this is an unblinded study. The reason I think that's important is that their primary outcome is admissions to hospital for heart failure. A mitral clip can be seen on a chest x-ray. I assume that patients who are presenting to hospital and are admitted for heart failure are probably getting a chest x-ray. Did Seeing the mitral clip on an x-ray have any impact on clinicians, it's hard to know. But I think it, again, does open the possibility for bias. The elephant in the room here is that there were two trials in this issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, the Stone article that we're talking about, and the French study from Obadia and colleagues, which are very different in their results. The Obadia article found no difference in hospitalization or mortality. There's a very good editorial that accompanied these two trials by Dr. Rick Nishimura, who's one of the world leaders in valve disease. And he points out three key differences 
which at least contribute to the differences in outcomes. The first is that it seems that the patients in the Stone article had more refractory, more advanced heart failure. Looking in more detail, they had higher BNP levels, they had more frequent hospitalizations, and they had this run-in period that if patients improved symptomatically, they were no longer eligible in the Stone article. The second point is that Dr. Nishimura raises that there was likely a, on average, difference in the actual valve pathology and valve pathophysiology in the different studies. And that there were more clips, more micro clips per patient in the Stone article compared to the Obadia article. And so I'll spare the details there, but there may be some underlying valve differences and also technique which led to differences in their outcomes. And then lastly, the Obadia trial from France followed patients for 12 months, whereas the Stone study followed patients for 24 months. Would the Obadia study had more statistically significant positive results if it followed patients for 24 months? Maybe it's hard to know. Interesting. So it seemed like the studies definitely had some kind of major differences between. All right, so take us home. Tell us what it all means. So I would argue that although there are these two different studies that have differences in results, I think that the Stone and Colleague article, also known as the COAP trial, does open the door for potential management in the form of transcatheter mitral valve repair for patients who are truly medically optimized, symptomatic heart failure patients with moderate to severe secondary mitral regurgitation. Now, I think this needs to be, these patients need to be carefully selected. It needs to be in the right center that does this frequently. But I would not be surprised if this became something that is considered for the truly refractory heart failure patients. It is worth noting that the Stone article will follow patients for up to five years. So the question will be, does the effect that they saw on both heart failure admissions, improvements in quality of life and mortality last the five years out? All right, let's switch gears to now the good stuff segment. So Michael, tell us about what you've been reading about. Yeah, so I saw this interesting report which was published in Science Translation and Medicine. It's called Increasing Tolerance of Hospital Enterococcus BCM to Hand Wash Alcohols, and it was published by Tito Fidel. So this is a study which, or a report more accurately, which looked at isolates of Enterococcus BCM and looked at historic samples that they had of this bug, and they compared the efficacy of isopropyl alcohol at killing these organisms. And what they found is that from 1997 to 2015, they had an increased resistance to this isopropyl alcohol. And more specifically, after 2010, the organisms were tenfold more tolerant to the alcohol than were the older isolates. Now, I think this is a fascinating kind of thing to talk about because in my perception, alcohol hand washes were effective at just killing everything. And it just never occurred to me that perhaps organisms could become resistant to it. And I think certainly this is something that will be coming to hospitals and impacting our management in the future of how we use these hand washes. And it definitely opens a possibility that maybe we need to switch up our strategies when patients have these types of infections to help reduce the spread.
that scares me a little bit, but, <laughs> uh, but, but I think it's not surprising overall. The article that I chose was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in January of 2019. It was a perspective piece titled The Grace of Denial and was written by Heather Schur. I apologize if I mispronounced, but S-H-E-R. Heather is a radiologist in Florida. And her article is sort of part reflection, part editorial, about the fact that we often have a negative connotation about patients who have denial about their illness, and that maybe there are actual positive parts to denial for patients, and that it may not always be a negative or detrimental coping mechanism to have some degree of denial. I thought it was a very well-written piece and a worthwhile way to spend two or three minutes if you're new to medicine or if you've been around for decades. That wraps up this week's edition of The Rounds Table. I would like to thank Michael for joining us and we'll see you again next week. Take care, everyone. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>